good morning, church. It's uh, good to be here. Whether you're in person or watching online, we are thankful that you've taken the time to worship with us and learn with us today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I am James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and this is our third week of a series we're doing called Adulting. Now, if you're not familiar with the term adulting, it's kind of just a, a buzzword that refers to like the practice of behaving in a way that's characteristic with a responsible adult, especially relating to more mundane, everyday, necessary tasks. So, you know, it would be something like you had a great Saturday planned for yourself and you were going to go for an amazing hike in the woods. But instead of getting to do that, you end up having to fix your flat tire. And since you're at it working on your car, you might as well change the oil and take it to get a wash as well because, you know, adulting. Or your tasks around the house have been really stacking up, so you take the morning and you pay all your bills and you catch up on the laundry and you scrub the skid marks from the toilet, and then your sister gives you a call and says, how you doing? And, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm good, just, just adulting. Or my personal favorite, you get home from work, you're so tired of, of working and you just want to read a great book or take your canoe out on the lake and see the sunset, but you know that tonight is your only chance to go grocery shopping because every other night is busy. And unless you want to eat out every night this week, you need to go to the store. So instead of doing that thing that you want to, you go grocery shopping. Why? Adulting. There are all sorts of little tasks and practices that we quickly learn are just a part of being an adult. And if we want to live like responsible, mature adults, we need to regularly do those things. Well, in our series on adulting, we're looking at the book of Colossians. And specifically, we are looking at how the Apostle Paul was giving this little church in Colossae some instructions of what it looks like and what it takes to grow up and become adults in our faith, to become mature in our walk with Jesus. And during our first week, we saw that growing up in our faith, it has to start with getting Jesus right. And last week, we saw that growing up in our faith, it means being actively involved in the life of the church. And then this week, we're going to end up seeing that growing up in our faith requires us to differentiate between worldviews and philosophies that are harmful to our faith and ones that aren't. Now, when I was a kid, uh, and some of you may um, relate to this either as kids or as parents, when I was a kid, my parents were very protective over what types of TV shows I could watch. Now, I was a 90s kid, and Nickelodeon was super popular. Any of you kids who were elementary schooling it in the mid to late 90s would remember shows like Rugrats or Ah! Real Monsters or maybe like Ren and Stimpy or Rocco's Modern Life. Uh, all my friends were always talking about these shows and how great they were. But guess who had no idea how great these sh shows were? I didn't. Why not? Because my parents did not let me watch Nickelodeon. Now, this was definitely a point of consternation for me as a kid. I could not figure out why my parents wouldn't let me watch Nickelodeon TV shows. I mean, were they trying to make me seem like that weirdo kid who didn't pick up on all the, the references from uh, last night's episode of Ren and Stimpy? But as it turns out, my parents, they were just trying to protect my fragile, developing mind from what they determined were cultural messages that those shows communicated 
that were not going to help me know and love Jesus in the future. Maybe they were right, and maybe they were wrong, but they felt like those shows were communicating things that were not going to help me develop an outlook that would lead to a life well spent with Jesus. They wanted to protect me from cultural messages that they thought were unhelpful to my growth. And why did they do this? Well, it's because my third grade brain did not have the wherewithal to understand what messages were good for me and which ones weren't. Now, the idea is that as we get older, hopefully we can become mature enough to decide for ourselves what cultural messages are worth absorbing and which ones we think are false and should reject. But honestly, figuring out what's true in culture and what isn't is not always easy, especially when it comes to the philosophies and worldviews that the world is constantly bombarding us with. I mean, whether it's TV shows that normalize an image of love and marriage that subtly undermines what a healthy relationship would be, or if it's advertisers that are convincing us that we need newer and better everything always, or if it's political discourse that encourages us to demonize people who think differently than we do, our culture is constantly trying to shape our ways of thinking, and the reality is much of what it's pushing on us does not lead to maturity in our faith. So just like parents try to protect their kids from cultural messages they think may be harmful, growing up in our faith, it requires us to protect ourselves from the lies that culture tells us and to do our best to differentiate between what cultural norms and philosophies are fine and which ones end up damaging our walk with Jesus and our walk with others. Not every idea that we hear from culture around us is true. And what we're going to end up seeing today is that if we want to become mature in our faith, we need to protect ourselves against harmful ways of thinking and living. And the best way to do this is to have an ever-increasing understanding of Jesus, but we also need to learn to think critically about what our culture teaches us. So we're going to dive into our passage today, which is Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 2. But before we do that, let's just take a minute and pray together. God, we thank you for this chance to dig into your word and to try and understand it better. God, I pray that you help us hear what you want us to hear today. Lord, we want to pray for marriages and relationships in our church. Today's Valentine's Day, God, and so we pray that you can continue to um, encourage and convict us to invest in our relationships the way that we should. We want to lift up today Judy Shaw, God, as she's in hospice care. We pray for her family. We pray for her, that you be with them and comfort them and give them peace during this time. We pray for Sue Heights, too, who received hard news about cancer this week. We ask that you give her wisdom as she thinks about what her next steps need to be, and that you also be a comforter to her, that she may lean into you and have joy in the fact that you're walking with her. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So this is Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Paul, he says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Have you ever been standing in line at the grocery store and the person in front of you is on their phone and you end up listening to what they say and you think to yourself, what are they talking about? Now, I know that you never probably purposefully eavesdrop on anyone else, but it is so hard to not listen when you've got someone standing in front of you talking loudly in their phone for everyone else to hear. In my mind, it's kind of like a a game because you can only hear one side of the conversation and you get to guess what's going on on the other line. Because when you hear someone talking on the phone, you're really only getting half of the conversation. Now, that's actually kind of how it is when we read the group of New Testament books that Colossians is a part of. Books like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, they're all these little New Testament books, and when we read them, what we're actually reading are letters written from one person to others. And these letters almost are always prompted by something. Either a message came and it was telling the author about something was going on in a church, or the author had received a previous letter and is responding to it. Whatever the case is, when we read books like Colossians, we're essentially reading half of a conversation. There has been something else that prompted the writing of the letter. And a lot of times, Um, It helps us better understand what we're reading when we take a little time and try and piece together the other part of the conversation, the things that prompted the writing of the letter. So, with Colossians, what prompted the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the churches in Colossae? Well, here's how we understand it. There was a gentleman named Epaphras who had met the Apostle Paul at some point and had come to faith in Jesus and ended up joining Paul in ministry. And after spending a few years doing ministry with Paul, Epaphras decided that he was going to go back to his hometown, a town called Colossae, and he was going to start a church there. And so he led this church for a few years, and after some time of leading it, Epaphras decided, hey, I want to go back and visit Paul again. So Paul being in prison at this point in time, Epaphras, he goes to the prison that Paul's at and spends some time visiting him, And while he's with him, he gives Paul a report on what's happening at the church in Colossae. He tells him all the good stuff that's happening, but he also tells him the bad stuff that was going on. And for the most part, this little church was doing really well. But there were a few issues that needed to be addressed. And one of those issues was that there were certain cultural influences in Colossae that were burrowing their way into the church. And although they were not necessarily pulling people out of the church, they were corrupting people's ways of thinking and making it so that the church wasn't reaching the level of maturity that it should. 
Now here's the tricky part. We're not 100% clear what those cultural influences were, but we can comfortably group those cultural influences into kind of two sides. On one side, you had a bunch of Jewish people in the church who had grown up in um, a more Torah-observant, more legally list, legalistically Jewish setting, and for the most part, they still existed in that context. They probably lived in um, Jewish neighborhoods. They had Jewish family members. And at this part in the history of the church, the Christian movement was still considered to be just a sect of Judaism. And so there was all sorts of pressure on the Christ followers to be putting as much trust in the system of Torah as they did in Jesus. The basic idea would have sounded like this. Sure, follow Jesus. He's a great teacher. But if you really want to be a God-fearing person, you need to observe the Torah, you need to practice the festivals, you need to circumcise the men and use the Deutero-Levitical codes for purity and cleanliness, you need to pray the Shema. There was a lot of cultural pressure to become more dependent on the Jewish tradition than on Jesus. The other influence, it came from the Greek pagan world because in the church you also had a lot of Gentiles who had grown up as Greek pagans. Their upbringing, it had been polytheistic. They had used a lot of mystical practices. They were used to trying to connect with their gods through things like cultic prostitution and ritual sacrifice to idols and sometimes different rites such as like self-abasement. Uh, and this was what they grew up with. It seemed ordinary and normal. It was what was going on in the town all around them. Your friends did it. Your co-workers, they did it. If you were a slave or a servant, you probably served in a household that practiced these things. These practices, they seemed like the normal way to be close to God. And so it makes sense that it was easy for these new Greek Christians to be trying to connect with Jesus by using some of these pagan practices that already seemed normal to them. So Epaphras, he tells Paul that the church in Colossae, it's doing really great, but they're struggling a little bit with the Christians being influenced by these surrounding cultural norms, and they were bringing in practices from the pagan and Jewish cultures that weren't healthy or helpful for them. And so a big part of Colossians is that Paul, he's trying to deal with some of these influences, and he teaches and encourages the church to try to help them avoid it. And so with that setting in mind, I want you just to, to hear verses 2 through 8 again. Paul writes, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may, be, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition 
and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Do you see how this makes sense with the context? Paul knows these Christians are allowing these unhelpful influences to stunt their growth and sometimes lead them astray. So he basically tells them, hey, Jesus is where it's at. Do what he tells you. Listen to what he teaches. The other stuff that you're hearing everywhere, don't be deceived. Don't let it take you captive. Paul's trying to make sure that these Christians don't lose out on the maturity that God has in store for them because they let some unhelpful worldviews and philosophies guide their lives off track. Paul wants to help them protect themselves against these not-so-good cultural influences. And here's the takeaway point. If we want to become mature in our faith, we need to protect ourselves against some cultural ways of thinking and living that do not help us grow in Jesus. But the question is, how do we do that? Well, Paul, he gives us two thoughts on this here in verses 6 through 8. He says, So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In these verses, Paul's outlining two ways that we try and protect ourselves against harmful ways of thinking and living. The first is simply to continue your lives in Jesus. And the second is to be on guard against hollow and deceptive philosophies. So let's pick those two apart and see a bit more about what I mean. First, Paul says in verse 6, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. There's people in the world whose job is to tell the difference between real paintings and forged paintings. Uh, Fine art collectors, they will often amass for themselves millions of dollars worth of fine art, and when they go to insure their art, the insurance company will send out a forgery expert who goes and examines the art to make sure that what they're insuring is actually the real deal. But how does an expert tell the difference between the real thing and a forgery? Well, it starts with being extremely well acquainted with the original piece. These experts, they study everything about the originals, from what techniques the artist used, to who owned it before, to what types of materials the artist worked with, and what those materials look like as they age. They know so much about the real thing that they can spot the inconsistencies in a forgery. This illustrates Paul's point so well. You'll never be able to tell the difference between the way Jesus wants us to think about life and the way the world wants us to think about life if we don't spend time first developing our understanding of Jesus. The best way to protect yourself against ways of thinking that hurt our faith is to make sure that we're growing in our knowledge of Christ. Because the more you know about the original, the easier it becomes to spot the fake. I love the way Paul says this. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue your lives in him. And then he gives us four adverbs 
that describe what it looks like to be living in Jesus. He says, continue your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Our, our NIV translation here, it does a really good job translating the original Greek of these verses, but the NASB actually is a little bit more precise in the original tenses of these adverbs. It reads like this. It reads, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up. Rooted, it's in the perfect tense here, which communicates something that has already happened, but has continuing effects. And built up, it's in the present tense, which is communicating something that's in process. So Paul, he's basically saying, continue to live your life in him. You've received Jesus by faith, and because of that, you have been rooted into him. What's it mean to be rooted? Well, if your roots are in something, you draw your nourishment from it. It's the thing that supports you. It keeps you from falling over in a storm. And he's saying, because you've been rooted in him and are now drawing nourishment from him, you are now being built up in him. What a beautiful picture. We place our faith in Jesus. We enter into a relationship with him where he nourishes us, where he gives us strength, where he supports us. We're rooted in him. And because he's nourishing us and strengthening us, we end up growing from that, and so we're built up in him. And the result of this is that we're strengthened in our faith, and we end up overflowing in thankfulness. Paul, he's encouraging us here to live a life where we fully lean into the reality where Christ nourishes us so that we can be built up. And by trying to live into that reality, over time, we end up developing the skill to see what lines up with Jesus and what doesn't. Growing up in our relationship with Jesus, it is the best way to protect ourselves against philosophies and worldviews from our culture that can hamper our faith. So what's this look like? What does it look like to lean into being rooted and built up in him? Well, one thing it has to include is that we need to be constantly growing in our knowledge of Jesus and his life and his teachings. We can't grow in our understanding of Jesus if we aren't taking time to learn about him. There is no growing in our rootedness and being built up without regular effort at learning more. So we go to the place where we see Jesus, the Bible, and we read it. And if you don't like reading, we listen to it being read to us. We dive into the stories of Jesus that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and we take it in. We watch for how Jesus interacts with people. We immerse ourselves in his teachings. We think about what they look like to, or what it looks like to treat people like Jesus treated them. And we think about what it looks like to apply the teachings of Jesus to our everyday existence. We don't grow in our understanding of Jesus unless we're actively trying to understand him. And the place that starts is with Scripture. Paul's trying to help the Christians in Colossae avoid getting duped by their surrounding culture. And the first step in that is to simply keep growing in Jesus. The more you know about the original, the easier it is to spot the fake. Or if you're a sports fan, the best defense is a good offense. 
The best way to protect ourselves from unhealthy and sinful worldviews is to be growing in our walk with Jesus. But Paul, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. I think the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this is helpful. Um, It says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. So while the best way to guard ourselves against unhealthy worldviews and philosophies is simply to be growing in Jesus, we also need to be careful, to learn to think critically about everything we encounter in the world so that we don't get taken captive. There is almost nothing in our world that is morally or ethically neutral. Everything you see, everything you do and hear and watch and smell is shaping ideas in you and reinforcing concepts in your soul. I'm not saying that everything you encounter in the world is bad. I think there's a lot of good, healthy ideas out there. But what I am saying is that there is very little that is neutral. Everything around you is trying to shape you. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, uh, the philosopher James K.A. Smith, he illustrates this through the simple example of going to a shopping mall. He asks us to step back from our familiar experience of going to the mall and actually look at what's happening. First, you park your car in a giant black expanse of asphalt that surrounds this huge building of a, a shopping mall, and it's ugly, and it's drab, and it's a little stressful as you navigate the parking lot and the weird traffic that's there because there's always someone going the wrong way down those one-way lanes. But once you enter into the building, something magical happens. You enter into the mall, and you're confronted with interesting architecture. Most malls, they bring you into a totally enclosed interior space with windows on the high ceilings, but no windows on the walls that would allow you to see into the surrounding mess of the parking lot. And this ends up creating a sense of like transcendent vertical openness that shuts off the clamor and distraction of the outside world and helps us feel like we've escaped and retreated to a new world that's distant from the one you just came from. So you walk into the mall, and then you start to encounter the stores. And each store, if we think about it in religious terms, it's essentially its own altar in which the windows give us pictures and three-dimensional images of what the good life looks like. The good life, it looks like this outfit or these shoes It looks like these two lovers frolicking in this meadow made whole by the denim jacket that obviously is what made their experience so magical together. And as we walk the passages of this mall, looking in the windows of each altar, we finally find one in which the iconographic message resonates with us. And so we enter and we search the racks for the thing that we feel will make us whole. And then we take that and we make our offering at the altar's counter, and we receive in return an item that gives us the chance at enjoying life more fully than we previously were. And in all of this is the subtle message, this is where you find wholeness. These things are what complete you, 
This is what you need for joy. True transcendence comes with having all that you desire. Now, I know this sounds tongue-in-cheek and totally over the top, but is it? I mean, people are paid good money to try and figure out how to design those window displays and how to create spaces in the mall that make you feel like you're someplace totally different than your normal life. And my point is this. Even in simple acts like going to the mall, we encounter subtle messages and images that are trying to shape our beliefs and our desires. And it's not just the mall that does this. Every TV show you watch, it was written by someone who cannot, even if they wanted to, divorce their ethical beliefs from the things that they're writing. I mean, just think of how TV has been instrumental in changing the sexual mores of our culture. Do you remember when Friends was pushing the boundaries of our culture's ethics of sex? I read an article this week, and the author, he talked about how he loved Friends when it first came out, and one day, his mom asked him what the show was all about, and he was embarrassed to talk to her about it because of how it portrayed sex. So his dad answered the question for him by saying, it's a show about friends who all sleep together in a New York City apartment that they could never afford, which is actually a pretty good description of the show. Back when it started, Friends was pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable on network TV. And by doing so, it influenced our culture's ethics. Friends, it was like the first show to present us with characters who we really liked, who made things like the use of pornography and promiscuity seem like just a normal average part of life. Phoebe's sister was a porn star. Joey slept with every woman he could find. And the show was written so that all of this was likable and hilarious. And through that, the show communicated something really subtle. It told us, if these people, who we really like, think that these things are great and normal and not a big deal, then these things must be great and normal and not a big deal. And this became instrumental in changing the public perspective of sexual ethics. Every book you read, every podcast, song, piece of news that you listen to, it is not ethically or morally neutral. Within it lies subtle cultural messages that if we just take in uncritically, will shape and mold us, and not always in the way that Christ wants. So Paul tells us, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. In more modern terms, don't let the surrounding culture trick you into buying into its version of truth that is not good for you. So what do we do with this? Because my guess is most of us are not going to go home and pour through articles that deconstruct popular cultural narratives. And most of us, we're not going to go to the library and rent every book we can that dissects how this show or that radio personality or this economic movement has negative impacts on our faith. So what can we do to make sure that we don't fall victim to the deceptions out there? Well, I think there's two basic things you can do. One is make it a point of thinking critically about everything. 
Now, you don't need to be a curmudgeon or a spoil sport. You don't need to say no when your friends ask you to go to the mall because you don't want to buy into their false gospel of consumerism. But we can be more savvy consumers of cultural information. And you can usually do that by asking a really easy question. What is this trying to teach me about what the good life looks like? What is this advertisement, podcast, show, news story, or book trying to teach me about what the good life looks like? Is this trying to teach me that the good life only comes if I own this thing? Or look this way? Or am sexually fulfilled in every way I could imagine? Or feel loved and accepted by everyone I could possibly meet? Once you can start to see what it's trying to teach you about its version of the good life, then it's not much of a jump to see if that lines up with the version of the good life that Jesus teaches. A second way that we can try to not fall victims of the deceptions out there is by regularly asking this question. Does this message that I'm receiving from culture make me feel like Jesus and his ways and his teachings are enough for me? Or does it make me feel like there is something lacking from Jesus and his teachings and his ways that needs to be made up for? Paul, he was worried about the cultural messages that this church in Colossae was hearing. And so he warned them to be careful that they weren't deceived by them. And in the 21st century, our cultural messages, they look different than they did in the first century, but Paul's directive, it still carries weight for us. Be careful. Don't be deceived by the deceptions that we encounter in culture. So let's just sum this up. Growing in our faith, it requires us to protect ourselves from the cultural philosophies and worldviews that can hamper our maturity in the faith. So what are we to do? First, we're to focus on growing in our walk with Jesus. The best defense is a good offense. The best way to spot a fake is to know the original. And secondly, we're to be careful of cultural messages. Be critical of everything and always be asking, does this make me feel like Jesus is enough for me? Or does it make me feel like there is something lacking in Jesus? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We ask today that you give us the wisdom to see what parts of our surrounding culture are good for us and what parts lead us astray. Give us wisdom, God. Help us think critically about the messages that we receive day in and day out. Lord, our prayer is that we can grow mature in our faith to become adults in our faith. And so we ask that this week you can help us walk with you that we may become rooted and built up in you, that our faith may be strengthened and that we can overflow in thankfulness. God, help us know you more so that we can identify the difference between the real thing and a fake. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. 